Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, Darren. How are you doing today? I am going slowly insane. I've had a bit of a communications breakdown. My imaginary friend has stopped talking to me, but aside from that, I think everything's going to be fine. Um, and we are here today to discuss a new entry on the 250, number 249, from a hot Japanese director, Akira Kurosawa. And to join us for that discussion of his latest entry on the list, we have our Akira Kurosawa expert, Chris Lavery. How are you, Chris? I'm um, well, Darren. Thank you. Um, just, you know, you have to stop calling me the Kurosawa expert someday soon, please. We've only got like three more Kurosawa movies to go. <laughs> After that, we'll kind of like diversify out. You'll become our, uh, you know, our Japanese samurai film expert. It's, it's, yeah, crap. Yeah. it's all good. Yeah, yeah. The, you were you were on a panel discussion, and you were you were you were speaking kind of uh, like fake Japanese with, with the other experts, and it, it but they were all so so polite, like they, they didn't call you out for it. That was that it's was great. that was a. Uh... That was a, a live panel, you know, in Japan, actually. It was, it was yeah. quite an honor, quite an honor. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so how are you doing, Chris? How are things? Good, good. Um, get, looking for, you know, enjoying this, you know, 250 virtual session. Uh, we are recording remotely. Uh, the new normal. Yes, that is exactly the new normal. Um, and we are discussing Akira Kurosawa's 1957 adaptation of Macbeth. Kurosawa himself has been described as the pictorial Shakespeare of our time by uh, none, le- none other than Steven Spielberg. He's he's also been described as the as the visual Beethoven by Andrew Quinn. Yeah, no, no, no. I I, I was um, I think it might have been Robert Altman or somebody. That's actually really good. That's pretty cool. And he um, is a huge Shakespeare fan. Shakespeare, interestingly enough, was banned in Japan during the Second World War because it was a non-Japanese text. But as soon as the war ended, Kurosawa said that he wanted to make an adaptation of Macbeth, Macbeth being his favourite Shakespeare play. He unfortunately discovered that Orson Welles was working on an adaptation in 1951, so he pushed it back and he delayed it. And he actually managed to get it made in 1957 with Toho Studios. Um, And interestingly enough, kind of... Throne of Blood is kind of has had an interesting legacy. At time of release, it was one of the biggest films in Japan. Kurosawa was one of the biggest directors working in the industry at the time, largely due to the success of Seven Samurai, which we've talked about as well, although Yojimbo and Sanjuro would come a couple of years later. Um, but on, on top of that, it gained a kind of an interesting reaction kind of in terms of international press. No, isn't it like generally seen as one of the better um, Macbeth adaptations? Did you, did you, Darren, in school, um, did you see the um, the uh, the Playboy Macbeth? Yes, the Playboy yes. Roman Polanski version, which I suspect is probably not aged well. I suspect our recommendations no. will probably be a bit thornier this month than they would be otherwise. Um, but yes, produced yes, by I did. Hugh Hefner and directed by <laughs> Roman Polanski. Yeah. Um, yes, it is a very, very interesting film. And again, it's kind of interesting in that sense because I studied Macbeth. I don't, Andrew. I think you did transition year. I, I did. Didn't. I did as well. No, um, I got to do. I got to do Macbeth in uh, in school with you, and then um, and then moved and um, and did half of transition year and then did and then did hamlet um it's a pretty good shakespeare kind of uh pretty good shakespeare repertoire i did i did i did did 11 subjects in total for the leaving cert um (laughs) although i think i only did seven in the exam um Um, which probably proves to be fair yes spread your bets exactly yeah yeah 
But that was that was like moving between schools and moving 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 classes like with like a couple of a few months um, before the exam and all that sort of thing. Probably didn't help entirely. Um, but yes, as, as I was saying, just very quickly in terms of the reception. That's how we end up making podcasts for a. It was not a living. <laughs> no, no, just for whatever, not even a yeah. living. Just, just in general, kids, you can aspire to this. If you get, if you study eleven subjects and take seven of them in your exams, yeah. you too one day might host a podcast, <laughs> but not make any money doing it. Um, clearly, yeah. we are aspirational figures, uh, all of us. Uh, but yes, very much in terms of kind of the the reception of Throne of Blood. Um, it was Kurosawa. It was received very warmly in Japan, um, one of the highest grossing films of the year of release. Uh, somewhat kind of more mixed reception internationally. T.S. Eliot has described it as his favourite film ever, uh, which is quite high praise. Uh, but it, it was perhaps more controversial among critics at the time. So Bosley Crowther at the New York Times described the action as grotesquely brutish and barbaric, um, with uh, with Mifune grunting and bellowing monstrously and making elaborately wild gestures to convey his passion and greed. To our Western eyes... It but he's, he's irrepressible! <laughs> you make him sound adorable it's like <laughs> who doesn't want to fear uh, Tashiro Mifune but yes uh, in the final yes so he's basically um, he looks like a, is a pictorial extravagance that provides a conclusive comedic howl is how Crowther kind of summed it up um, but at the same time it has perhaps been sort of more warmly reappraised as you mentioned it is now regarded as perhaps the most successful cinematic adaptation of macbeth the american literary critic harold bloom has called it the best adaptation of macbeth um that said there is still some minor controversy as recently as 2014 among shakespeare critics who insist that they get very upset when people describe this as the best adaptation of macbeth because it largely strips out any actual quotes or text or sort of dialogue from the play. It's a bit like saying, you know, um, Star Wars is my favorite Kurosawa film. Um, it's apparently <laughs> how they sort of react to it. Uh, but yes, I I had not seen this before. Had you guys seen um, Throne of Blood before this podcast? Uh, I hadn't. No, no. Um, it was only recently. You know, came across it recently, and then even recently, still learning it was uh, it was based on Macbeth, which piques my interest further. And then discovering that you are an expert. It's weird how that cycle happens. I, I get told I'm an expert after the fact, and it's like, oh, okay, this is easy, being an expert. It's, it's, it's very much a roller it's coaster like, of an you've just been, You've just been, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, is it Joe 90? Um <laughs> where You get put in a machine where the wheel spins around you and... It's kind of more thinking that Chris took a shortcut home through the woods and encountered a strange woman who said, by the way, you're now an expert in Akira Kurosawa yeah, films. It's exactly, like, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I murdered but, my best friend to get here. Well, well, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. But Andrew, Spoiler yourself, how, how do you seen this before? Spoiler for Chris's life. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope the cops aren't listening. <laughs> um, don't worry, we're keeping social distancing. <laughs> this this happened before the um, the lockdown. Yeah. Um, had I seen it before? No, I hadn't. I hadn't. Um, but I, I I mean the 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 point that they make about it not being a Shakespeare uh, not not being a Macbeth adaptation. I didn't know this was a Macbeth adaptation until like two or three minutes in. <laughs> 
when it, when it, when it becomes like really clear that it's a that it's a um yeah so it, no i i don't like it, more more so than kind of like the lion king being a hamlet adaptation this this is this is very um obvious because it, it's um it's kind of like and um but lifts entire um, scenes and entire set pieces and entire sequences and entire plot. Yeah, the only thing and, that's missing and the is cobweb the castle too. Um, they say, and, and they're like, "Ah, pain of God," or um, and that sort of nice question. reference. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, all right then. So we're going to jump into the spoilers in a moment, but very quickly, going to do a three-round question, right? So, Chris, to start us off, do you think that Akira Kurosawa's um, Throne of Blood? Uh, the actual English translation of the title is called Web Castle. Um, you can use either if you want. But do you think that it belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Uh, I'd say yes. I'd say yeah. It was it was it was very very good. Um, yeah, I kind of yeah. Was, sorry, use words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was I I enjoyed it because it, it was it was using. Shakespeare is, is the is the source and stuff, and kept quite close to it. So it was a story I recognised immediately, but with Kurosawa's edge on it. So um, I think I think it well deserves it, yeah. And Andrew, yeah, and and I think he he does something. He's he's able to do something quite different as well. I think um, watching a lot of Japanese movies um, lately. Um, like watching my neighbor Totoro, um, and Pompoko, and Pompoko, um, House Moving Castle, I presume, as well. House Moving Castle, um, Laputa Castle Castle in the Sky. But I noticed with my neighbor Totoro, I noticed with this the amount of, um, the amount of stillness, um, that's kind of just allowed to happen. Like, I, I think in, in, in Western movies, um, they they like to fill scenes with kind of um um like the kind of uh propulsive kind of um movement sometimes there there's there's a lot of kind of long drawn out um scenes in this and i think that it it replaces some of the words from um cuz I, I i always remember thinking in school when um it was actually when when we were doing Macbeth. I remember say, saying to the um, saying to the teacher uh, that it's a good thing that we don't need um, all these soliloquies in um, in television because you can just bring the camera really close to James Gandolfini's uh, face, and you don't need a soliloquy because you you can you can kind of. Um, get his thoughts, but on the stage, yeah. the 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 actors are much further away. Um, so yeah, in 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 cinema and 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 in, and in this, sorry, what point am I making? Uh, do I believe it should be under two fifty? Um, so I love that you actually replaced your soliloquy like mid soliloquy. That was quite impressive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> Did I think that or just say that? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would. Um, I. I. I'd, I'd like to have a lot of 
uh, Kurosawa movies on the on the two fifty. Means we get to we we get to meet yeah, with Chris because yeah. Chris yeah. will refuse to talk about any movie if it's not Kurosawa. <laughs> He's, he's he's willing to talk about things where he isn't an expert. I think is the problem with Chris. He's very humble. Um, <laughs> this, this, but, uh, this this conversation is getting dangerously close to non cross tower, so I'm going to check out from there to yeah. to the reservation. But yes, um, and actually to, to bring back to what Andrew was talking about there about stillness, we, it's notable when we talked about the Pudacast in the sky. The soundtrack to that, even in the Japanese yeah. version, is much sparser and much sort of less intrusive and loud than the American soundtrack. It's actually actually recorded a different American soundtrack because American audiences aren't used to sitting in silence or contemplating images without having kind of loud noise to tell them how to feel at a given moment. And yeah, that stillness is very much a part of this. It's it's the part of the no. Uh, movement the theater movement uh, which actually predates kabuki um theater and it was a huge influence on mifune as he was doing it we'll probably talk a bit more in the spoiler zone about specific cues that he kind of took from no theater in terms of composition but yes that stillness is very much kind of a part of it very much part of an emphasis uh within the film and in terms of being on the 250 i certainly have no objections to it i like it a lot i think it's very good i think it's hugely influential i think it's very important it's notable that even polanski's um and I hate that we're going to say Polanski so much in this podcast, but even Polanski's version of Macbeth um, borrows several cues from this film in terms of composition, in terms of framing, in terms of those shots of people moving and across the landscape. A lot of that is drawn from Throne of Blood as much as it's drawn from the actual text as well. Um, but it's also obviously hugely influential, hugely iconic. It is the first of Mifune's big three adaptations. Obviously, myself and Andrew have talked about Ran before, uh, but there's also The Dark Sleep Well, which he did in 1960, which was an adaptation of Ham um, and I'm not sure how this ranks in terms of those three because I think I may prefer Ran slightly to this uh, but I think it's absolutely beautiful to look at it's stunningly well composed Mifune is amazing in it um, absolutely astounding as a performer in it um, and I think that Andrew's entirely right when he says that what Kurosawa does here is he translates it visually um, he finds a way to tell the story by stripping out a lot of the dialogue and by using visual storytelling and that's actually something that I, I remember I had a similar thought to Andrew in terms of Macbeth where it's like I always thought Macbeth and this is such a pretentious thing to say I always thought Macbeth was the lesser of Shakespeare's big four plays uh, I always thought it was inferior to Othello Hamlet and uh, King Lear Never quite had their sophistication or wit, dear boy. But no, I remember being really ticked off when I was sitting in school because it's, for me, I thought it was the least impressive, least deep, least complex of them. Uh, but interesting enough, I always thought it makes the best films because there's so much visual stuff there in the text. Um, you know, and again, this is Macbeth we're talking about, not Throne of Blood. So things like ghosts appearing, things like witches appearing, things like forests literally moving across the stage, things like that, that don't actually appear in the play, but are suggested by dialogue and therefore lend themselves to kind of cinematic storytelling. So I think, you know, Macbeth works very well as a film, and I think Throne of Blood works perfectly as a Macbeth film. So second question, Chris, having literally just watched this, uh, would it be on your own personal 250? So if you were, I don't know, on a desert island and were only allowed 250 movies in some sort of sadistic choice, um, would this be on your list? It's Movie Island. Yeah. Um, would I have this in my own 250? I would, because um, not only... I think it's actually one of my favourite Kurosawa films. Um, just because, like, it's... it's. It, it, I know it, like, it was... It's immediately recognisable to me, and kind of like... So I, I very much kind of gone into it very early, and Mifune is always amazing in most things so it's kind of watching an actor i love do a film i'm very familiar with 
and then you know but you know Kurosawa as well managing the whole thing so yeah it would it definitely would be in my 250 I think yeah because it is I mean again I only watched it for this for the first time and a lot of it is recognizable it's amazing how much of it I feel like I've seen before um and yet it's still compulsive viewing um but Andrew what about yourself would it be on your own personal 250 yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I think I would. Like, like I've, 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 I've a fondness for uh, Kurosawa, and I think I prefer it to, um, to Ran. I think, I think I found, I think I found Ran maybe just a bit um, difficult in terms of um, just it, it being Kurosawa as an old man making the most kind of bleak, um, uh, like. <laughs> kind of hope, hopeless movie even even though this is um macbeth it it feels kind of um you know um forgiving or something like that well, i suppose i, 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 well, I was about to say i mean bosley crowther might have a point this is a laugh a minute really it's an upbeat comedy that leaves you feeling good about yourself in the universe well, in comparison to Ran, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, um, if if you're to compare it to things like um, uh, Yojimbo, uh, um, Sanjuro, and uh, Seven Samurai, um, it's a little less, it, it, it's a little more humorless, um, but um, but it, it still it still feels kind of clo- closer to the um, positive sense of some of the the okay. earlier movies, I guess. But that, that's interesting because again this is one of those like the the woody allen and again this is the best podcast ever the woody allen <laughs> comment about having the uh the early funny ones but where like kurosawa's career is generally divided into like the films where he had just a little bit of humanism and hope and then his post 1970 films which are we're all screwed existence is torture and maybe the fact that it ends will give us some sweet release from that um and it's kind of interesting because throne of blood although it is one of his early films in that sense it to me, watching it felt incredibly bleak. It somehow felt even bleaker than Macbeth. And I mean, we'll talk about maybe why that is in the spoiler zone, some of the structural changes that he makes to the plot, and particularly characters that he removes and downplays as well. It just seems... It, it seems like a companion piece to Ran, to me, to me watching it anyway, because it's very fatalistic. I mean, it does, yeah. yeah. That, is, that, is, that is fair. I think the problem, the problem with Ran is, is how much the King Lear stand-in has and then loses, I guess, in, ter- in terms of bleakness. Whereas oh, this so is a story... Like a, yeah, like a sharp drop, really. Like a... Yeah, yeah. Where, whereas this is kind of like more of a cautionary tale. Um, you know, that it's it's not about somebody, that a guy who had it all. Um <laughs> And then the universe decided no. Yeah, yeah. It's more about somebody kind of like, um, yeah. I I don't know if he's even not happy with his lot. No, um, no like, but I mean, we'll probably talk I, I, more I, on about the particulars. Yeah. But yeah, I, I suppose it, it's it's perhaps less heartbreaking. For me, anyway, than 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 running. And then finally, before we jump into the spoiler zone, just a quick rapid fire round. So, if listeners have not yet seen uh, Throne of Blood, and keep in mind that if you're in the UK and Ireland, is available from iTunes. If you're listening in the states or overseas, it is available on the Criterion Channel. So, if listeners have not yet seen Throne of Blood, should they pause the podcast, stay at home, and stream it to a local device? So, Chris. <laughs> 
Um, should they stream to local device? Yes, they should. Um, it's it's you know it's it's um, it's a good gateway Kurosawa film. Um, you know, a story you'll be familiar with, whilst you know introducing you to kind of a lot of his kind of tropes and styles and stuff. Um, I think yeah, I think people should seek it out. It's you know they would they would they would enjoy it a lot. As, as as you know, to join the other stable of Macbeth films, um, <laughs> it certainly aged better than some of the other ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but yes, no, I kind of agree with that. That's in terms of accessible Kurosawa, it is mm. probably among a lot up with Yojimbo and Sanju or Sanjuro, which are obviously kind of you know samurai influenced westerns. I think that perhaps Seven Samurai, although obviously its influence on Magnificent Seven is great, the fact that it's three hours long. Mm. Perhaps makes it a bit harder to justify watching. <laughs> I do um, remember um, searching for it on iTunes and uh, just thought, I wonder how long this one is. Oh, one hour 42, grand. <laughs> Boom. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's really happy with, with yeah, with the, with the length of this one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, that also makes it accessible. And Andrew, would you recommend listening stream it? Yeah, I would. And I, I guess we, we've mentioned... Um, uh, Toshiro uh, Mifune um, and we always have a lot of nice things to say about him because he's great but um, I think as well there's a fantastic performance by um, Asuzu Yamada um, play, playing uh, Lady uh, Lady Asashi uh, who's the kind of um, Lady Macbeth character um, we don't we the Takashi Shimura is also in this. Um, yes. We don't get to see um, um, as much of, of of him, which is kind of disappointing. But don't let that put you off. Um, this is <laughs> Takashi Shimura uh, fans out there. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah, you do yeah, get is yeah. golden. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of tip your hat to him. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Actually, when you mention that, two quick things. It is notable that this is regarded as a changing of the guard film in terms of Kurosawa, because it was a point at which Takashi Shimura, who was a obviously a much more significant role or had a much more significant role um, in The Seven Samurai, kind of slips back into the kind of ensemble or kind of repertoire uh, kind of crew, basically, in terms of Kurosawa films. He was regarded as kind of an equal or co-lead to Mifune in a lot of the films leading up to this. This is the point at which he kind of steps back and just joins the rest of the troupe. Um, but in terms of uh, Suzy Yamada, um, and this is actually really, really sweet, this very brief story I'm about to tell. Apparently, the story is Mifune was um, a, receiving some sort of Lifetime Achievement Award. And as part of that, they were doing just a very brief retrospective of some of his most iconic film roles. And what they would do is they would show short scenes from some of his most memorable films. And when they picked the scene from Throne of Blood, and again, you know, very minor spoiler without any context, they picked a scene from the climax of the film, which I'm fairly sure everybody who's seen the film can guess what it is. And even if you haven't, oh, yeah. you probably can as well. But it is a scene that only involved him. And apparently Mufune's response when they showed him that was but you picked a scene from the film that doesn't have the best actor in the film in it um, because they chosen one of the films that didn't involve himself and Usagi Yamada, uh, which I think is a very sweet, very generous thing for an actor like that to say. And I, I like, I definitely agree with, with like, um, I don't think he's being humble either. I, I, um, I th she, she is the, the better um, uh, actor in this movie but she's she's um but Toshiro Mifune is the uh most Toshiro Mifune yes 
um, so, um, so it's 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 difficult to kind of um, uh, it, it can't be replaced. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like grading a Christopher Walken performance. It's something you can't really do relative to <laughs> normal acting. No, because it absolutely is. Again, I, watching it this time, I think what really clicked for me is that Mifune feels like a silent film actor who has discovered how to talk and now he can do everything. Um, like there are several scenes in the film that hinge on the camera being on Mifune's face and his eyebrows or his lips or his eyes kind of swelling in the style that you expect with kind of a silent film where it's like, okay, we need to communicate entire lines of dialogue with your eyebrows. And it's like, yes, I can do that, but I can also yell. And it's like, well, we're sold. Um, but yes, I, I agree with everything Andrew said there. All right, then I would also concur. I think it's absolutely worth watching. I think that it is a very, you know, it's very accessible to Western audiences, has a nice tight runtime, is recognizable, um, but also is visually stunning as well. Yes, absolutely watch this movie. Come back and join us on the other side of the spoilers. Spoiler zone! So, Chris, uh, what is uh, Throne of Blood about for you? Um, it's about taking short walks in the forest and talking to strange people. And uh, <laughs> and then your life falling apart as a result. That's, that's, that's what I got from it. It's very much a COVID-19 movie, honestly. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's, just, it's full yeah. of like, things that you can't really do anymore, like wandering out in the forest. But also like about hand-washing and the importance of like being very thorough when you wash your hands. If we were to go into the forest now, because there hasn't been anyone in the forest for a very long time, would we find that like all the trees are just full of porn? Um, <laughs> do they, or or do, does it need someone to put them there? Um, or do they just magically appear? Um, yeah. Does that? I think. I think maybe we're showing our ages. I think all that stuff is on the computer now. Um, yeah. There's really yeah. no need for the magic uh, porn giving trees. <laughs> that, that what, was definitely. Which is great because I'm imagining it like the Wizard of Oz. Hang on, just let me write this down. Computer. <laughs> yeah. Do they, they, like because it's so weird that that was a cliche, but that like I found porn in trees. Um, uh, like the, any, any, any oh, it's, it's not an analogy uh, then. No, no, no. no, no. This no. <laughs> no, was... was like a a thing that people would do in the nineties, I guess. I think even in the early thousands. But yeah, in, yeah. in terms of talking about sort of uh, throwing a blood, and it is kind of interesting that sort of Chris mentioned the meeting of the witch in the wood sequence because that is obviously again one of the first really memorable, really iconic, really striking sort of visual kind of things. As notable because that kind of gets at what we alluded to earlier with kind of the the theatricality of the film and the no style and kind of Andrew mentioned this when he talked about the kind of wonderful performance styles uh, involving from Mifune himself but also from Yamada as Asaja and it's notable that the way in which the film uses this is the stillness, this quietness, the character kind of sitting there. Because you have the basically the equivalent of the witch character um, in Macbeth, or the witch characters, the Hecate sisters uh, from Macbeth. But you have the witch sort of sitting there with a little thread and a little wheel going round and round. And it's wonderfully uncanny. Apparently that was lifted directly uh, from uh, a piece of no theatre, which I believe was called The Black Mound. Um, and the plot of the Black Mound involved two monks wandering through the wilderness one day, discovering a shack alone in the woods. Inside, there was a woman who was... Raccoons? 
<laughs> and did they bounce on their testicles? Um, but no, inside there was a, a woman spinning a wheel, spinning a yarn, sewing. And basically, um, you know, she said, come into my house. I need to go out. Whatever you do, don't look in my bedroom. So naturally, what do the monks do? They look in her bedroom and they discover mounds of dead bodies. And then she chases them through the woods and basically scared off by their fate. But again, you can kind of see the influence of that here, where you have the woman with the wheel and you have the mounds of dead bodies just kind of lying around in the middle of the forest, uh, which is quite striking as well. Mm. I, I actually found that scene like proper scary. I thought it was very, you know, very well done. And it's kind of the... The, the witch bathed in white and stuff is kind of gave it this kind of kind of eerie eerie tone. Looks great. I do love that you know one of the first thing that Mifune's character, um, what Shizu does is like, well, we're trapped in the forest by an evil spirit. You charge forward with your spear, oh, yeah. Miki, and I will just fire <laughs> randomly from my bow and arrow into the wilderness and kind of hope that that gets us out of this situation, which is kind of amazing. It's one of those things where it's like. I- I love Mifune so much. Yeah. Def- definitely running out of arrows as well. Yeah. Mm. But again, in, in terms of that as well, it's it's notable. This kind of gets at something that I found kind of interesting what Andrew said there. He won't he won't run out of arrows later on, though. No, no, he won't. Again, symbolism. Uh, and it's notable that one of the arguments that's been made about this as an adaptation of Macbeth is that it's actually more structured than Macbeth. It's actually more carefully kind of laid out. Macbeth is five acts um, and Shakespeare, apparently the way that Shakespeare writes, time is is somewhat fluid within those five acts. This is four acts and they're all very clearly structured with a fade out. Um, All of the act breaks are broken up with characters with the chorus joining us. And again, this is something that's carried over from no theatre as well. So we we open and we close with a kind of a Gregorian chant. We have the witch who's kind of chanting to herself as she's sort of moving the circle round as well, which is kind of something that I think they compare no theatre to Greek theatre as opposed to, say, more kabuki style theatre kind of that came afterwards. Um, but in terms of kind of actual themes and in terms of, of content, um, it's been suggested that Kurosawa imposes a much tighter structure. So you have four acts that each of which ends with a fade out and each of which opens with a bunch of guys milling around talking about stuff that's happened off screen. Um, <laughs> which is kind of like a a nice way of delivering exposition. But it also instills the fact that each of those four acts takes place over the course of a day, followed by a night, followed by a day. And then there's a gap of time between each of those as well. And each of which kind of gives it all a very clear sense of kind of structure. But the arrows are also kind of a core theme as well, because obviously everybody knows the climax of the film, and we'll talk specifically about the climax later on, but involves the lead character getting basically impaled, turned into a porcupine is how contemporary (laughs) reviews described it, um, with arrows. But like throughout, you have all this arrow related imagery. You have the most obvious thing is that like early on, his wife says, you know, oh, oh, um, you know, Suzuki wants you to lead the forces into battle so that you'll get hit by arrows from the rear. And then later on, like when he's about to murder uh, Suzuki, if you notice, he's sitting directly in front of, a kind of a set of a holstered arrows as well, which kind of makes it clear that kind of, if you're watching it, kind of it's, you know, you get a sense that, oh, something bad might happen, possibly involving arrows, because irony. Um, <laughs> it is worth, when you guys watched it, did you get subtitles on what the witch was singing? Out of curiosity. Because there's some debate about, like, the subtitle versions of the film. I saw different, um, yeah, there seemed to be different subtitle tracks, because, um the i i i want because i watched the itunes version and then i saw a youtube video where they were talking 
um, about the um, the um, bowyer or the archer who had um, shot um, Toshiro Mufune all those times. <laughs> um, Best shot he does ever. actually <laughs> get shot. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, like like the the he had like this kind of like wooden board thing, and there were these kind of uh, pins on the end of each um, arrow. Yeah. But they show um, they show the subtitles in it with with, with the witch. Um, no, no, with the with uh, one of his generals kind of shouting, um, and in in the in the iTunes version it says kind of like where um, um, he mentions. Um, uh, Tsuziki by name, and then in the in the in the in the other version of subtitles, it just says you 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 killed our um our um our king like we'll we will avenge our king without without saying Tsuziki, um, so or 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 sorry, not our king, our our lord, yeah. Yeah, um, so there are there are several different versions, including say the Criterion edition, which was kind of restored more recently. Uh, but actually, let's talk about the sequence of the arrows, um, just very very briefly, because yes, those were real arrows. There were twenty trained archers standing just off camera, firing arrows at Mifune. As Andrew pointed out, they tended to have blunt tips, put little uh, arrows on them, sort of little sort of needles on them, basically, so they would stick. Um, that means that Mifune, as Mifune has talked about this, how, like, if you watch the sequence, you'll notice when he's running, he moves with his hand first, uh, so that the archers know which way he's moving and how far he's going, so they won't actually hit him. Um, <laughs> as Andrew pointed out, they did hit his board several times. Um, he did remark that, apparently, he had nightmares for years after the fact, in which he imagined himself being shot 20 times by arrows is kind of hurtling towards him he said that his That's acting right. when he's when he's praised for his performance um in that sequence he's like i wasn't acting at all um <laughs> apparently after they finished shooting the prop master said we're done for the day mifune said and tomorrow and the prop master was like oh no 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 kurosawa got what he needed we're, we're done here at which point mifune showed up to the prop master's office with several bottles of beer and was like thank goodness that's over and <laughs> we saw that all right and they were very glad as well the next day when when, <laughs> when he was true to his word and they didn't ask for extra takes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but um, it is it's worth noting, again, this is a technique that, you know, many great artists have tried and employed in the years since. Most recently, Netflix and Adam Sandler apparently used it during the shooting of The Ridiculous Six with Danny Trejo. Apparently, they actually shot arrows at Danny Trejo on the set of The Ridiculous Six, which was part of the reason why the cultural consultant walked off. Um, one suspects not the only reason the Native American cultural consultant walked off that film, but apparently one of the key contributing factors. So, I mean, it, I feel yeah. like it's the only time we're going to get to mention Adam Sandler and Akira Kurosawa in the same story. I feel like the the sacrifice of having... <laughs> <laughs> The the sacrifice of having all those arrows kind of fired at you and and having nightmares is probably probably feels more worthwhile when it's when it's the Kiro Kurosawa rather than um, Adam Sandler. Um, if you're gonna suffer yeah. for your art, you know, do it doing a Kurosawa film rather than a Sandler film. I, yeah, yeah. I get that. They call, they call him the Emperor, don't they? 
Um, and and understandably so, because it is one of the most memorable scenes in cinema, one of the most vivid and memorable, and it's a great ending to the film. But it kind of gets back to this idea, what we're talking about in terms of theme, because this is something Andrew mentioned, which I found very interesting. And the kind of distinction that you put between this and, say, Ran, where you mentioned that like the thing about Ran is that Ran seems particularly depressive about the human condition. And while this obviously is not a happy film in any sense, you're like, yeah, but the guy starting off doesn't seem like he's, you know... He makes choices and those choices lead to where he goes as opposed to, you know, it happening kind of naturally or whatever. So it's kind of interesting in terms of that because I, one of the things that I kind of took from this is is that sense of fatalism kind of baked into the movie. That sense of inevitability. Um, that's kind of like, it's something that kind of distinguishes it, it a little bit from Macbeth because there's still that sense of prophecy where you have the witches show up and say, oh, by the way, you're going to be king, but you know, you won't get, your children won't get to be king after you or whatever. And the sense in which a person makes a choice because in Macbeth, there is a sense of Macbeth making a choice. Whereas here, I got a bit less of that. I got a bit more of a, just a general people are awful all over. And again, this is one of those things where we mentioned when we talked about Sanjuro and Yojimbo, you know, as much as Kurosawa is known for making, you know, samurai films, the samurai films are beloved, you often get a sense he doesn't really like samurai that much. Um, he's kind of very skeptical about samurai as a concept. So you have this sense in Throne of Blood that, like, what happens here is inevitable because of mm. the way the characters operate. So you have, for example, it's quite clear that he doesn't want to kill um, uh, Tazuki. That sort of... Uh, Wazish, uh, sorry, Washizu doesn't want to kill um, Tazuki, but what happens is his hand is basically forced because when he shows up at Saji, he's like, oh yeah, but if you don't kill him, Miki will mention that you were prophesied that you would kill him and you'll have to kill him anyway. By the way, how do you think Suzuki came to power? He killed the previous warlord. That's how it works. And you have this thing that happens throughout. And again, it's, it's kind of slightly different from... Macbeth, and again, there's probably historical reasons for that because I think that Macbeth was written by Shakespeare as a gift for James the First, if I remember correctly. So uh, the large part of Macbeth is the idea at the end of the play that order is restored, that you end up with the rightful king getting back on the throne, and like this disruption that was caused by Macbeth is kind of just a temporary aberration and kind of sorted off screen. Whereas in Throne of Blood, it seems more like no, this is this is the way of life. This is the way things are. Yeah, it's it's in in kind of um, Elizabethan times, and and also obviously also in the time of of James the First, um, the whole idea of the divine right of kings, and of there being a hierarchy as well of. Um, there being um, God, and below God are the archangels, and below the archangels are the angels, and below the angels you have kings, and below the kings you 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 have Everyone man. Else. Yeah, yeah, um, and and then like um, <laughs> uh, dogs and burger buns and <laughs> everything else. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, and ice cream because that was the Magnum Carta, right? Yeah. <laughs> ah. Um. So no, so it's interesting what you say about the, the fatalism because you kind of really, I I got that anyway when they hear the prophecy from this witch, like you know you'll be leader of North Mansion and to Mifune's um, character and then to Miki, he's like your son will be Lord of Cobweb Castle. And they both look at each other and goes, Oh, isn't this great? And then there's like this like 
very heavy subtext, like, well, you know what this means, right? <laughs> well, I know like, what no, this means, no. but I want you to say it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know that um, one of them will predecease the other <laughs> immediately. <laughs> kind of how it's immediately sort of structured but again and again you have this sense even the kind of witch or the demon kind of says this where there's this real sense of what is it oh you want something but you act as if you do not want it mm -hmm. and you have this kind of repeated line from mickey where he's like every samurai longs to be master of a castle and then asagi kind of repeats it later on as well and you have this sense and again this is something that kind of you see and we saw a lot in sanjuro and yojimbo as well and, and arguably even in Seven Samurai as well, but the kind of hypocrisy of kind of like the, the samurai code or the kind of honor culture or the warrior culture, which is this idea that, you know, these people are fundamentally noble and that honor imposes a system on barbarity. And then it's like, so you just pretend to be that you follow a system, whereas it's really just built on this idea that everybody wants power. Everybody needs power. Everybody's waiting to stab everybody else in the back. You know, there's a moment where um, he says, I want to live in peace. And Asagi responds with, there can be no peace. Uh, because that's just the way that the world is built. This world of kind of men with swords and arrows. And the inevitability of the outcome of having a world built with men and swords and arrows. Um, which kind of does feel very cynical and very grim. It's like the inevitable outcome of all this was always going to be that people would, you know, that they would murder the current lord. And then they would be murdered themselves. Because again, you have that sense of symmetry. It opens with this idea of rebellion. And again, it opens with a, with a scene very much structured symmetrically. So you have the sequence at the start where the, the guy runs up and he's like, Fort 4 and Fort 5 have, stole, have fallen. And, you know, Fort 3 has been evacuated to Fort 2. And it's like, oh my God, these rebels Oh, they sunk my you. battleship. Yeah. <laughs> very Shakespearean, by the way. It's like, yeah. And because when I was watching it the first time, I was like, oh, are they doing this because they don't have the budget to show this on screen? And then I was like, oh, no, 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 just just doing the proper Shakespeare thing of having somebody show up and explain the plot to you. Um, <laughs> but, like, they repeat that later on at the climax, where, obviously, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's another rebellion, and it's happening again with Anui, and it's all falling to pieces, and you're going to end up murdered. But even the idea of the opening sequence, um, which book or the sequences which bookend the film, which are these kind of little monuments in the middle of this wasteland, Famously shot in Mount Fuji, actually. And again, um, we'll talk a little bit about the cast construction because that's a great Kurosawa story in a moment. But the monument which basically marks Here Lies Cobweb Castle, which is a sense that everything that happens in the movie is completely pointless because it's all just going to end up destroyed anyway. Everybody dies, so there's absolutely no point. Um, like, there's a moment where um, he, uh, where Wasagi sort of says, um, you know, the winner is the man who wins the last battle. And you're like, nobody wins their last battle. I get the sense this is the entire thematic point of the movie. Um, but why I asked about the witch's subtitles um, is because the version I watched, which was the BFI version, doesn't have the witch's kind of repeat on subtitles, the witch's rhyme on subtitles. Um, so I'm just going to read that out to you in case you guys didn't get that as well. And this maybe is a very, perhaps the most Kurosawa thing I've ever read. Strange is the world. Why should men receive life in this world? Men's lives are as meaningless as the lives of insects. The terrible folly of such suffering. A man lives but as briefly as a flower, destined all too soon to decay into the stink of flesh. Humanity strives all of its days to sear its own flesh in the flames of base desire, exposing itself to fate's five calamities, heaping karma upon karma, 
All that awaits man at the end of his travails is the stench of rotting flesh that will yet blossom into flower, its foul odour rendered into sweet perfume. Oh, fascinating. The life of man. Oh, fascinating. Bundle of laughs. Oh, cheerful. Yeah. Very cheerful. <laughs> you need you need some sort of crooner to turn that into a song. <laughs> um Oh, blue eyes, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just thinking of Sinatra, like kind of uh, de- de- <laughs> delivering that. Yeah, <laughs> but and it's kind of interesting that Andrew kind of says, like, and I mean, and I think you are right. It is a bit less kind of like cynical and bleak than Ran, if only because Ran basically hammers you with that for two and a half hours, as opposed to this just kind of like occasionally reminding you of it. But I, I did find something very pessimistic and cynical in, in Throne of Blood. I remember wondering if they were all dead, like, to begin with. <laughs> um, um, but um, but no. <laughs> no, they're not. But but eventually. Yes, every everybody dies eventually. Um, but yeah, just very, very quickly, actually, in terms of the construction of the castle, actually. And again, this is one of those great Kurosawa castles, all built on Mount Fuji which is wonderfully atmospheric. It looks absolutely stunning. Um, Notably, Kurosawa being Kurosawa, he had just released Seven Samurai a couple of years earlier. He was therefore kind of untouchable. The film was released in international markets around the time they started production. So he got all of the money. He originally wanted uh, somebody else to direct this movie. He wanted to write it and have somebody else direct it. Toho took a look at the budget for it and said, nope, if uh, you're making this, you're directing this. It's apparently why if you read the script to it, the script is much more vivid uh, than Kurosawa's other stuff. Because Kurosawa tends to write for himself quite loosely and give himself a lot of freedom. But when he writes for other people, he's like, no, you will put what I tell you on screen. Um, which is quite nice as well. But apparently while they were filming it, he had several disagreements with um, experts from the time period about how the castle should look. Um, they built a model castle on the Mount, on Mount Fuji um, and basically built it entirely to specifications. Kurosawa took a look at it and said, no, it's too flat. And apparently Toho were like, we spent quite a bit of money on this. Are you sure you don't want to try it? Get a, get a sense of it. Maybe see if a couple of scenes work. And he's like, nope. And apparently Toho, having learnt their lesson from Seven Samurai, were like, look, he's going to tear it down anyway. We might as well just tear it down now, save the money, and build it again into his specification. Um, apparently he had actual fights with the historical advisor about the design of the castle because he wanted it to be flat and oppressive as opposed to tall. Um, so it seems like it really kind of builds across the landscape. He famously, there's one of the sequences where um, the two lead characters are kind of wandering through the fog. Hmm. Um, and that sequence where, and it's great because what they would do when they were filming that was they'd wait for actual fog on Man Fuji to appear. He's a great, um, he's a great user of uh, weather. Yeah, is uh, Kurosawa. So many of his movies kind of have 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 that. You think of the rain in, um, in Akiru and in Seven Samurai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 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 Seven Samurai, when it's just kind of um, bucketing, but the, the 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 wind as well, and the the um, kind of all of the dust in um, in Yojimbo as well. Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, he really, um, he really does enjoy using that, and I think it, it makes it makes the shots more, I guess, interesting looking as well. 
Oh, they are. It's, it's absolutely beautiful to look at the film. And again, what they would do is when they were filming that sequence where they're riding through the fog, um, some of them he does use cuts in, um, but most of the time he didn't. And what he would do is he would have them ride off into the fog and then have the cameraman shout, we're here, we're here, so they could ride back and basically find uh, out where the camera was. But notably, um, that sequence where the two of them are sitting down and the kind of the fog clears over Cobweb Castle and they're like, oh, there's the castle. Um, apparently it took him four days to get that shot because he just wanted to use actual fog um, to make it work for him, which is kind of amazing. Um, and again, it, Andrew noted like the use of, of weather uh, as a Kurosawa thing. And again, there's a sense of like that playing into how powerless man is, because obviously the elements are much more powerful. Uh, one of the interesting things I found here was the use of animals, because um, it happened throughout. Because you have the horses are a big deal as well. And again, that's something that's taken from the text of Macbeth. Where you have, like, I think that after Duncan's murder, there's a reference to his horse turning cannibal and running wild. Um, and so Kurosawa just turns that into something visual here, where you see the horse going round in circles outside the house, where um, at the point where um, the two are kind of the Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth are sort of uh, Washizu and sort of Asagi are discussing what to do. But later on, you have the sequence where Mickey's horse is going wild and it doesn't want to go off into the woods and then it comes back without him. But even outside of that, you have like sequences where they talk about the rats. The rats are fleeing um, the castle shortly before the final battle because rats know instinctively to flee when a house is going to burn down. And again, you have that sense of Kurosawa being like, ah, human nature. Humans are dumber than animals. If only people listened to the horse that didn't want to go on that journey or the rats that were fleeing before everybody got brutally murdered. Oh, human beings, how silly they are. Um, all these omens, all these omens we always uh, we always foresee, but never heed the warnings <laughs> of. Um, and it's because of the blackbirds, uh, which again, because you can't train blackbirds, apparently what he did was he just unleashed like 30 of them into the studio while they were <laughs> filming. And we're just like, I hope this works. I really hope this works. Um, and it works really well. It's actually quite stunning. Um, they, la it, they land on Toshiro um, yes. at one point. It has <laughs> like a kind of a Bernie Sanders moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. That was the real problem was that he wanted to introduce proper healthcare across feudal Japan and they just couldn't stand it. <laughs> um, the you had crooked uh, crooked Mika basically trying to wreck the sort of system in order to help the establishment candidate win. I think really that's what we're kind of getting at here. Yeah, I feel like she she's she she um if uh if Bernie Sanders had um uh, uh, lady, lady asashi yeah yeah that, um yeah he'd he'd probably already be present she's she is um a great asset god bless her really could it, do, when he's raving mad um she oh, like covers for him quickly and yeah. is like um uh he's drunk he's drunk oh he misses his old lord and I was thinking at that moment, I bet when he is drunk, she tells people that he's tired. <laughs> it's like, it's like oh, he's bargain. very tired. He's had a really long day. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely out of character. Never mind. He misses his lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again, like a stray dog. Um, it is it's yeah. notable, actually. And again, like that's something Kurosawa does with Mifune as well and Seven Samurai as well. But in terms of Asashi, actually, because you brought her up there, 
the way in which she's used is another thing that's taken from no theater because she's notably very still there's something very uncomfortable very uncanny about her particularly in, in contrast to mifune as an actor because mifune is all like i'm very pent up i'm very you know i feel like i'm about to explode at any given moment whereas you just have the stillness of uh, isu yamada who is apparently told not to blink um, while she was filming the, the the scenes in order to make her seem more uncanny Obviously, also the makeup that was going on as well, which is, uh, does it look like she has demon horns at certain points in the film? Yeah, that I, me? I, no, I, I got that and I was like, what is that about? I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. The whole film I was like, this is strange. Uh, but then yeah. it's never really, you know, discussed at all. It's delightfully creepy in it. <laughs> It is. Yeah. And the way, like, she turns her... There's a moment where, like, the first time she turns her head, and it's like watching a doll in a horror movie. It's like, I didn't realize <laughs> yeah. that she could move like that. It's kind of terrifying. Um, but apparently, yes, the, the makeup or the mask was designed to look like uh, an, something from no theater. It was the, and I apologize for this, the Fukai or Shakumi masks, which are apparently used for middle-aged women. Um, in order to kind of so that was kind of a nice way of symbolizing that but even things like the way in which she moves like she almost seems to glide with you know kind of like her silk socks or something when she's going to get the the kind of like not the, the drugged wine and she kind of just disappears <laughs> oh, into yeah. blackness i don't know just... there was there was a lot of footing like yes. foot, 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 foot. <laughs> it reminded me of um you know when you're in the sleeping bag oh it kind of uh -huh. shimmying <laughs> Yeah, like and sh shimmying in a in a sleeping bag. Yeah, that's why I she, love that. That's that why me, she uh... couldn't stab Suzuki because <laughs> she'd wake him. I'm sorry, Chris. No, just the thing that made me think of was um, what was the stars in her eyes? You know, tonight, Matthew, I'm gonna walk out of this darkness with this strange drug. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she does do it very, very well oh, and very, very convincingly. Spot on. Spot on. Uh, <laughs> And I kind of, again, the, the way in which they kind of commit to what they're doing, uh, which is quite striking as well, because it's a stunningly beautiful film in terms of framing and composition. Um, again, one of the reasons why um, Kurosawa wanted to build it kind of wide as opposed to um, tall was so that it would be claustrophobic. So you kind of get these sequences where the characters seem kind of boxed in. And again, like this is the thing where last week we talked about Mummy, which is a film that was actually shot in one to one ratio. This is kind of shot in old four point three, four to three ratio. But actually, it does seem very kind of boxed in. It actually seems more like a square. But you get these wonderful symmetrical compositions throughout. So you get these sequences where, for example, uh, Mika and um, uh, Wazish, uh, sorry, Wash Washizu. Why do I have difficulty with that name? Washizu are basically kind of walking up and getting the castle. You know, they're kind of going up to visit uh, Suzuki, and they kind of go down. And he's like, "Oh, by the way, you are now king of the northern fort." Um, and there's again wonderful Mifune acting. It's one of those great. He's like a silent actor who just wandered into a talkie where he presents him with the sword, and Mifune kind of looks up at the sword, and you get this intense close up on his face, and it's like, "I would really love to play poker with this person." Um, I feel like I feel like I would do very well in a poker game with this person because Mifune's eyes just kind of just go and it's just kind of he almost starts sweating on command it's quite yeah. incredible um, and then kind of when he turns around himself and Mika kind of looking at one another guiltily but in that sequence where they're kneeling down you have like the two banners behind them giving you a nice sort of square symmetry or the moment later on where after the assassin kills Mika and presents his head you get that shot where it's just uh, Mifune 
and the assassin, and he kills the assassin. And the assassin kind of squirms on the floor. Oh, um, takes like ages. A... Takes yeah. ages to die. Really, really slow. Uh, yeah. Very, very long death. Yeah, and incredibly brutal for a 1950s kind of film in terms of like what it's showing on screen. Because it does look like he keeps trying to get up. It's like... Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose like in... Um, Obviously, um, Ran is quite brutal. It was made a lot later, but even in Sanjuro, you have the um, the 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 sequence with the with the blood splatter yeah. um, when 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 he's um, um, when he kills Takedai's uh, uh, character. Who, by the way, I missed in this. Um, they could totally have made him uh, Miki's uh, son. Would have been the right age and everything. Maybe not though. Maybe it's the maybe it's the wrong. Um, uh, this was before that, wasn't it? Before Sanjuro, yes, and before. Uh, yeah, Sanjuro, yeah, yeah. I think um, I, w- I was watching an interview with with Takadai, and he said that he was an extra in um, in Watchmakalas, the Seven Samurai. Okay, and w- 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 a couple years before this, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It, it, there was like six or nine years in between the Seven Samurai and him uh, being in, um, I think, uh, Yo, Yo, Yojimbo and uh, Sanjuro, I think. Um, but um, he was saying how he embarrassed, he humiliated himself so much that he never wanted to do another Kurosawa movie again. He like wasted everybody's time. He was only an extra. Um, but he ended up like taking up taking up like three hours to do this scene when he just walks past um because he couldn't get it right yeah damn it next take can i get another i love the idea of like an extra being the one who makes kurosawa do extra takes so though to be fair kurosawa rehearses rather than does takes apparently kurosawa only need to do a couple of takes he just rehearsed it quite a great deal beforehand no uh, like that that he's happy for people to do it on the first take like that that's uh that blood uh, splatter scene that I mentioned that was that was a one take um as well and they they, they that's um but that if he doesn't get it right he could be going for like 50 yeah. um takes also they'll say but and yeah also yeah you're, four, you're... four days in order to get the fog to lift right as well so it's a nice balance to strike between the two um it is yeah. worth noting actually in terms of that because he does we talked about this in seven samurai but what kurosawa tend to do when he shooted uh, when he shooted when he shooted <laughs> when he shot when uh, he would use multiple uh, camera setups so he'd actually try and capture scenes from multiple angles simultaneously um, so that he would be able to kind of cut them together. And again, we talked about like on Seven Samurai, what he would do is he would edit the night that he would shoot as well, which meant that he could get an extremely quick turnaround. It's notable that this Throne of Blood is one of two movies that he released in 1957. Incredibly prolific period for him. Um, the other movie that he released was The Lower Depths, which is based on the play by Maxim Gorky as well. Um, to give you a sense of the range with which he was operating. It's um, it's easier to be prolific if you cut out the post-production stuff. Yeah. So that's the thing with, with yeah, like, like because he edits himself, um, and I guess I guess a lot of uh, mo- most most uh, directors don't. Um, but yeah, it 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 means it means that yeah, he can be he can be wrapped kind of um, much sooner. I yeah. guess. So it's a, it was a two weeks between film wrapping and premiere. I can't remember if that was Yojimbo or Sanjuro, but basically... Was it Cats? 
<laughs> Cats was 36 hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I love the idea that we're comparing Tom Hooper to uh, Kira Kurosawa. It's like, <laughs> Kurosawa yeah. ain't got nothing on me. Um, but in well, terms James of... Corden is a modern day Mifune, you know. <laughs> what <do> they say. <laughs> do they? Do they really? <laughs> um, it's also worth noting, actually, in terms of Kurosawa's output as well, his previous film before Throne of Blood was I Live in Fear, which is a film about the fear of kind of like uh, nuclear devastation, destruction, also starring uh, Mifune as well, kind of an existential drama. And it's been argued that you can kind of see traces of that in Throne of Blood as well, in that like there's a sense in which if you wanted to, and again, we talked about this, I think, a little bit when we talked about the samurai film in Sanjuro and Yojimbo, perhaps being a little bit reductive in a sense of talking about a lot of post-war Japanese cinema being about the legacy of the Second World War. But I think maybe it's not too much to read that into it here, where you have the sense of a culture of violence that leads the country into collapse and devastation. Um, notable in terms of actual historical setting, um, that it was apparently set during a period of extreme turbulence uh, in Japan. It was known following the Onan War, which ran from 1467 to 1477. Um, it's known as the, and I apologize for this again, I don't know why I keep apologizing, but doing it anyway. Yeah, um, you... You're getting lots of names wrong and not apologizing. There's That's... no, there's no, there's no need to to apologize. <laughs> you do you, I do me. Um, but yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sengoku Jedi, which is the age of the country at war, is apparently when it when it's set historically speaking. As yeah, well. You said that perfectly. Yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar. That's Kurosawa expert. Um, <laughs> But yeah, kind of like the, it has been suggested that you can read this as a kind of a metaphor for the Second World War, for the idea of kind of like the imperial kind of Shinto or sorry, state kind of attitude. The idea of kind of like, um, you know, the emperor and the importance of kind of imperial Japan and kind of read this as a metaphor for the folly of that approach. The idea that the inevitable outcome of that approach is destruction, death and devastation for everybody involved. And I found something. And again, you mentioned this when you talked about the the really creepy scene with the witch at the start, like the mounds of dead bodies of dead samurai just that just seem to be lying around in cobweb forest for no reason whatsoever it's like did they wander in and get lost did they just sort of like did she eat no they've they've the... been lovingly assembled like they didn't <laughs> just wander in and end in a pile uh, it's, yeah. it's some some feng shui but which yeah. you know just yeah. <laughs> i love the bit where she's like come join me over in my mountain of dead bodies so i can talk to you <laughs> and a, tell you why this a, is a sweet deal <laughs> it's, a, it's a compost heap Yes, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely for gardening purposes. That you've assembled all your bodies like in one place. Um, yeah. I mean, and again, that's the flower that she's talking about. The flowers are probably very, very sweet in Cobweb Road. I do love the geography of the film as well. I love the idea that they built Cobweb Castle just like right outside a haunted wood. It's like, this seems like a perfect place for my headquarters. I can't see this backfiring at all. The only way to reach it is through a labyrinth haunted by demons. <laughs> is it Miki is like saying, ah, all, all, our, all our enemies get lost in this forest <laughs> because they do not know the way like we do. Where are we? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Um, my, my personal yeah. favorite moment in all of that is like after the let's ride through the forest stabbing the air and firing arrows at the air there's the moment where Washizu goes huh was that hut there before 
<laughs> As if Beaky's going to say, yeah, we passed that a few minutes ago. Didn't you notice? Yeah, um, we got directions <laughs> off the witch from there earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. We didn't pass that ghost earlier. This is good. <laughs> this means we're not going in circles. Um, yeah. Uh, definite progress. <laughs> yeah. Making forward momentum here. Um, also, actually, because Andrew mentioned the kind of blood splatter, because there is something similar here as well. As you mentioned, the blood splatter in Ran and the idea of the, you know, the, the blood splatter against the wall. Here, it's not. Oh, no, quite in, as uh, in San Juro. No, it's no, no. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely there. There's the sequence where the, the forbidden room within the castle, where again, the traitor. Um, who turned out to be a sniveling coward in the end, which again is one of those nice circular kind of moments because it's like, well, Shizu is a traitor who ends up being a coward in his final moments as well. Um, but you have this idea of kind of the stain, the stain that won't go away. And in, in, the, Macbeth, for, in the forbidden room, yeah. that's where they, they dance the lambada. <laughs> <laughs> it is the forbidden dance. Um, oh. Sorry, Darren. No, no, but I, I do kind of again. You kind of get that sense of the stain, which is the thing from Macbeth, the the spot, the out out brief spot or whatever. The um, but the idea of kind of Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, wiping her hands, and even here you have Asaja cleaning her own hands as well. But the idea that the stain is larger in this film, and that is something you can't get rid of. It's just kind of there, and it's kind of it's yeah. on it's on a place, and it's it's kind of it's immovable. It's like whoever ends up in this castle is going to end up stained as a result. They need to take out that timber. I was watching it with an architect and she said, oh, you need to take that timber out. Like, stop, stop trying to clean it. Like These places get remade all the time. Just like remove that. It's not like you don't have a big forest next to you. I appreciate the accent, by the way, as, as somebody who knows who the architect who watched it with you was, that uh, I appreciate the accent, Andrew. Oh, God, no, I don't think I was trying to do an impersonation. Um, but um, by the way, has anyone here watched Quibi as, as a side note? Um, which is no. the five minute YouTube video thing that's being launched by Jeffrey Katzenberg. But it's full of crazy, like basically like, you know, sort of 30 rock style television shows, including shows like, for example, Dismantled, in which Titus uh, Burgess launches food cannons at blindfolded food critics, and then they have to reconstruct the meal that they've just been pelted with um, within five minutes. But there's also uh, Murder House Flippers, which is basically about the art of taking houses in which people have been brutally murdered and restoring them for markets. So just when Andrew suggested that, I was kind of like, yeah, what they need is that proper team in there. They don't need to, those two guys who are like, well, maybe if we try scrubbing it a bit more, it'll come out. No, no, no. You need a proper renovation team to come in and gut that place. No, no, you need more than you know, Lawrence Will and Bowen on it, you know. Just need to... <laughs> yes. A nice throw. Yeah. <laughs> really, really ties the room together. Uh... Loads of pillows, yeah. Um... I like the idea of uh, Noriyasu and Kunimaru and Miki's son all just like saying, "Let's let's go to Inui's place and wait for this all to blow over." because they all end round. up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it seems like he's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. For the supposed enemy, he's like, "Oh, sure, yeah." <laughs> You guys yeah, because at, at the beginning he's like, yeah, but make make sure you put Fujimaki to death. And it's <laughs> like, 
but he's not so sure about uh anyway and he's like ah. <laughs> he did let me chill that time when i was murdering my own predecessor um, <laughs> exactly yeah yeah um in terms of just very briefly, actually, because um, I think we're, I get the sense that we're reaching the end, which means that there's only about half an hour of this podcast left. Um, <laughs> but no, very, very, very briefly, to be honest. Um, one of the things that I found interesting is, did you guys notice the banners that the characters were carrying? And again, this is something that Kurosawa uses quite well in terms of framing, because it gives you a nice kind of square box when there are two of them on screen together. But did you notice the fact that they're all kind of waving these flags and banners that are kind of pinned on their backs? I noticed them so much as thinking they must be really awkward to have on your back all the time. Yeah, probably yeah. very ineffective during battle. Yeah, probably wind exactly, resistance yeah. while riding a horse. It's like a sail. <laughs> when you have these paper doors as well, they're probably all always like yeah. cutting into doors. Yeah, really inconvenient. Um, but they're apparently they are mascots that so basically you'll notice that all the samurai wear the same costumes, which apparently is historically accurate. So the only way that you could tell people apart in the distance would be the banner that they were carrying on their shoulder. Uh, but they carry the banner of their house. And two things. We'll start with Mickey first, because this is um, understandable and makes a great deal of sense. Did you notice what was on Mickey's house banner? It no. was a rabbit. Okay. Because he's virile. Like a rabbit. In case you don't... Yeah! Yeah! See what, see what Kurosawa did? You can't see the pointy fingers that Chris is making, but I assure you Chris is making pointy fingers. It's like, that's my man. Good old Mickey. Yeah, like, literally light bulb going off my head right now. Like, ah. um, did, you, did you also then notice what, what Shizu's uh, house mascot happens to be? Um, which again, is one of those things where everybody around him probably should have taken a moment and were like, Really? <laughs> Um, it's a centipede. It's oh, like I a, do. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's like a curled up centipede. It's like, where were you when they're handing? It's like, do you want a wolf? Nah, nah, not a wolf. What about a bear? Nah, not a bear. Eagle? Nah, 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 nah. I got, I got the perfect house symbol that we're going to use here. No, I said, I said human centipede. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a bottom one hundred episode, right? It was not in the first series of Game of Thrones, you know. House of, of Stark, you know. Oh, centipede, mate, no. Cut one of our legs off and we still have 99 left. <laughs> uh, but again, it's, it's worth noting, because I did a bit of research on this, because of course I did. Um, the centipede in Japanese culture, um, it has a positive connotation for being associated with the god of warfare. However, despite that, centipedes are considered, and I love this, impure, polluted animals associated with the dead. They're also mentioned in myths as gigantic, threatening creatures wreaking havoc wherever they go. So again, you kind of get the sense that there probably should have been a point at which somebody's like, look, I know you really dig centipedes, yeah. but we need to have a chat. It's a, it's a little yeah. on the nose, isn't it? You know? yeah. <laughs> the royal helmet holder is just like sitting there all the time thinking, I should tell him. Yes, um, <laughs> yes I love the royal helmet holder. It's amazing. It's yeah. one of those lovely little would you details. would you love to have somebody to hold your helmet? Down? Is that what <laughs> I you're feel saying? like this sorry. is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I beg your pardon. Um, I'm sorry. Because it is it is worth noting that yeah, Suzuki uses a table, and I love that. Well, the first thing that Washu, uh, sorry, Washizu does is like, no, 
No table for me. I'm going to have a dude whose job it is to sit there with his hand outstretched so I can rest my helmet on it. So this doesn't feel like a good use of resources. He has a little uh, little banister as well for like leaning on. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like a piece of furniture that we don't really have because yeah, we, we don't kneel as much, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I like that. Um, and who... Um, who during the the uh, the scene when the when the forest is 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 approaching the cow? Uh, did did anybody else think run forest run? No. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, I absolutely love that. And again, that that gets to the thing that you could do with Macbeth because Macbeth is a play that works very well as a film because you it's very hard to do the forest is moving on stage in Shakespeare, as anybody who has attended a stage play version of Macbeth will probably attest. But it is something you can do in a big budget blockbuster. And it's like where where you get the sense Toho are like, fine, we'll let him cut down a forest and march it towards. And again, I, I kind of love that and again you see it like the first shot you see looks like it could be model work. And it could be like, yeah, this is a responsible use of budget. But then like literally after Washizu has died, so after the film is functionally over there's no need for the scene to be in the film except to show actually yes we did cut down an entire forest where the characters arrive at the castle hauling big trees behind them as well so it's like yep definitely real trees and i kind of love that kurosawa is like yep that's that's how i roll put that money on the screen yep, yeah exactly. so yeah that was it's to please the accountants it's like you know <laughs> justify the whoa, cost a, a million you know dollars on on you know Timber, you know, where did this go? Oh, you know, that, that scene right there, look. Yeah. We did it, production, we used it. Production value, baby, production yeah. value. Um, notable, like, and again, one of the things that I really like about Kurosawa's, like, attention to detail slash ability to spend the studio's budget. Apparently, um, obviously, the outside of the castle is built in Mount Fuji. The inside was shot on Toho Studio sets. But to ensure consistency between the two, he apparently had three gigantic trucks full of dirt from Mount Fuji carried into the center of Tokyo and kind of spread all over the inside of the castle so that they would match between for continuity of shots, which is kind of amazing as well. Nice. Nice. That's commitment. It is worth noting as well, very briefly before we wrap up as well, the character who is missing is arguably Macduff. Um, there's no real Macduff character here. You could argue the character played by Takeshi Shimura, um, who is Odakura and Noriashu is the Macduff character, but he doesn't get focus or, or kind of attention or he doesn't get a major arc in the film. He's mostly just sort of there. And he's not a central point of focus. So it, it kind of, what it does, it, it removes the idea of a hero. You kind of want him to have more of a part because it's Takashi Shimura as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, it, um, um, it's it, gra gracefully short. When, when, when Washizu is laughing maniacally and kind of sharing ghost stories with, uh, with, with his troops, I'm, I'm wondering kind of like what, what management book has, has he just <laughs> has he read? Uh, read kind of like, um, I mean it seems to work <laughs> that's bonding it's you share something personal from you and that gives yeah. them an investment it's like he's offering them buy-in basically into his vision. yeah um, he's like <laughs> I mean I wouldn't tell just anybody how crazy I am but because I trust you guys 
you know, I give you something, you give me something. And again, wonderful use of shot there. Um, the uh, use of telephoto lenses, again, Kurosawa's style of filmmaking. Mm. But at least those absolutely beautiful shots where it kind of almost looks like there's a living wallpaper of people. Um, behind him during those shots because it kind of compresses the telephoto lens compresses space it doesn't give you a sense of depth. oh yeah sorry yeah yeah just because as, as a guy who is um not familiar with never didn't do Macbeth in school i did hamlet um is Macduff the character at the end who ends up killing Macbeth? yes okay cool he's the no yeah. man of woman born and again this is the thing where you get the sense that uh you know, as much as Kurosawa makes movies about samurai that everybody loves and are fantastic, doesn't really like samurai that much. It's notable that like there's not really that much swordplay in this. The closest thing to swordplay you get is the moment where Shizu gets slightly like sloshed slash hallucinatory slash has a mental breakdown in the middle of dinner and starts waving his sword around blindly, um, like trying to stab a ghost. Um, otherwise, the film kind of largely avoids swordplay as well. He doesn't even draw his sword, I think, at the end. He just kind of collapses. So it's kind of like a samurai movie with absolutely no swordsmanship. Because again, it's well, he doesn't. In... It doesn't just collapse. It's yes, the whole yes. kind of Sonny Corleone uh, <laughs> uh, uh, extended scene. Concussion, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is great. I kind of love the idea. I kind of want to believe that Mifune is like, fine, you can fire arrows at me, but only if I get the best death sequence ever. (laughs) (laughs) I get to yell cut on this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's an absolutely stunning sequence as as well. But again, the absence of Macduff, as, as kind of Chris pointed out, does deny you the obligatory kind of samurai sequence. And again, that's something that you see... In a couple of Mifune's films, was it Sanjuro has a similar sequence at the end where it's like you're expecting the two guys to have this really cool samurai fight sequence. And when they do, it's kind of almost a tragedy that they end up doing it or they end up kind of fighting, even though we'd argue that's the point of the genre. But I think that kind of wraps up in terms of uh, Throne of Blood, unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about, anything that we haven't discussed already. No, no. um, um, Yeah, no, I I think that's about it for me. Chris? Yeah, no, that's... Wraps up in a nice little, a nice little bow on top for me too. I think. Um, and then finally, because there, we can't ever actually end when I say that about wraps it up, um, just very quickly <laughs> in terms of two fifty tropes, no inappropriate smoking that I saw in this film. Although there are some candles out that are possibly unsafe given the amount of fabric on display. There is food waste. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. Nobody has any food at that banquet because Miki is too busy being murdered to come up, to show up on yes. time. Yeah, um, all that food has just gone to waste. It's very upsetting. Yeah, I well, mean, make up yeah. for it with the drinking, I suppose. That's, you know, <laughs> that doesn't go to waste. Yeah, that, and I'm great. sure as well, the studio were like, the audience won't be able to tell that everyone has been served food. I mean, we're <laughs> we're you're only really going to see Miki and Miki's son's uh, play setting. It's like, no, I want everybody to serve food, and nobody's allowed to eat it. <laughs> It has to be the best food in all of Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> Proper good old Kurosawa attention to detail there. All right, then. So what we normally do before we wrap up is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie that we've just discussed. It could be something that is completely random. It could be a film, a television show, a book, even an experience. If you like wandering through the woods and encountering strange women, then also recommend that. Um, but to give you a time to think about that, I'm going to ask Andrew, what would you recommend? Um, something that I was reminded of when... Um, 
when talking about this movie, the 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 fact that there's the pillar that marks where um the castle was. where the uh, cobweb castle used to stand, and that idea of everything that was once kind of like regal and significant, um, eventually kind of um, uh, disappearing and and falling into ruin, and and the the kind of like it's something that's that people come back to in art a lot because it 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 kind of makes us think about mortality, but um something that it reminded me of, um was because we're in a lockdown. I've been listening to a lot of um music. I don't normally get to listen to music when I'm at work, um and I'm a fan of Philip Glass. I've been listening to, um Akhenaten, which is which is part of his series of kind of biographical operas, starting with Einstein on the Beach, which is about Einstein. It um, Satyagraha, which is about um, uh, Gandhi. Um, but I think my favorite is Akhenaten, and one of my favorite parts of it is later, like like the whole opera is about the kind of significance of Akhenaten as a pharaoh and how he is much um, greater than any. Um, pharaoh before since and like all this sort of stuff and it's kind of it's all kind of contemporaneous to then they're talking about their great wealth and their great influence and all these things but one of the final scenes it just has it's in the present day and there's a tour guide talking about uh this is all that remains of of the um of the once great uh temple and if you and if you go down there, there's a ferry that does a brisk business, and you can get your photo taken and that sort of thing. But that every that like that that everything has kind of disappeared. Um, so I I I enjoy that opera. Um, and it's on it's on Spotify and stuff. Um, and it's it's um it's good for getting you thinking about the kind of similar themes, I guess. And Chris, yeah, that's for me. Good. Um. Only just because it's been on my mind, because we've been talking about Macbeth um, the whole lot. Is I, I, it kind of makes me want to go back and what rewatch um, the Michael Fassbender kind of Marion Cotillard version. version. Yeah. yeah, from um, a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, Damn it, Chris! You just... stole my recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can just edit me out with this, you know, post production and uh, take the glory. Um, I remember seeing it and thinking it was really good, and it kind of I, I kind of want to revisit it again and um, as, as a little companion piece. And um, separate to that, one thing I'm listening to at the moment, which is you probably couldn't get further away from what we've been talking about, but um, David Adoherty is doing a uh, a lockdown podcast. He's currently holed up in his parents' house in Ackle Island, so he's doing a daily podcast uh, just uh, with such news as jigsaw updates and uh, <laughs> <laughs> get it, getting his getting his dad to play uh, medleys of Wanderley Wagon or whatever it was he, he was known for. So I'd, I'd highly recommend that too. Oh, cool. In terms of recommendations for myself, I will second that recommendation. <laughs> uh, it is an absolute you're, you're, you're going to recommend Coriolanus uh, <laughs> to 2011's Coriolanus. Titus Androd- Andronicus, actually, the Julie Trainer version is, is fantastic. I would wholeheartedly recommend that if people are looking for kind of like a Shakespeare-related fix, as well as uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet from 1996 as well. 
Um, which again isn't really that cinematic, but Hamlet is like just watch Hamlet is basically what the appeal of what Hamlet is. Oh, how 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 did I not recommend um, Laurence Olivier's Hamlet? Laurence Olivier's Hamlet's great. Um, sorry, um, I'll 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 throw that in. I only recommended one thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's, 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 it's what, it's what made, you can recommend as many things as you want it's what made me want to write um oh. and and um i did want to write at some point <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no and and uh, i haven't seen i haven't actually seen olivia's hamlet um so i'm gonna say i'm gonna be a charlatan and recommend Branagh's hamlet as well um in terms of other recommendations because i was thinking about this got me thinking about fate and destiny and the idea that we're all screwed uh, and that we have no choice and that nothing we do matters in the grand scheme of things because we're are, all going you, to are you going to talk ways. about next week's 250 Yes, yes, that is exactly what I'm going to talk about. I recommend the 250 as a podcast. Very much captures that yeah. experience. Um, but no, yeah. I, I, just like the, exactly, yeah. Well, actually, we're going to talk about what next the next week's 250 is. So you're actually closer than you might think. Um, but yes, no, I would I would recommend uh, Devs, the TV show Devs, uh, which is available if you're in America. It's on FX on Hulu. If you're watching in Ireland uh, or the UK, it's on BBC iPlayer. It's basically from Alex Garland, who is one of my favorite writers and directors at the moment. Uh, one of the great uh, film and television science fiction writers, I would argue. The man responsible for 28 Days Later, for Sunshine, uh, but also even for, um, was it uh, Ex Machina, um, Dread... Um, and also even um, Annihilation, which is one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Um, Devs is basically the story about a murder at a Silicon Valley uh, tech company, uh, where it turns out that they are working on a predictive algorithm that will hopefully, well, that will, according to the CEO, hopefully prove that the universe is uh, deterministic, that choice is an illusion, and that nobody has any free will whatsoever. So as you might expect, it's a barrel of laughs, uh, but it's it's very good. I watched uh, most of it over the course of a, a single day last weekend, um, and it, it's fantastic. It's really stayed with me. All right, so if people are looking for a bit more Chris in their lives, where can they find you online, Chris? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Chris Lavery 6 Come say hi. Stay away from Chris Lavery 1 to 5. <laughs> no, yeah, they're, they're, they're a bad lot. They're a bad lot. It's, it's like Star Trek Six. It's secretly the best one. You were, you were, you were, you were the first. You were the first one to leave the Chris Lavery Six, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was. I was like the guy who left the, the boy band Five and became Four. I still call myself Five. So I'm that guy. I do like that you weren't like the Justin Timberlake. We just got to keep it real there. It's like, yeah. Um. But yes, uh, I'm like the Howie of the Backstreet Boys. But yes, um, <laughs> um, yes. so you can follow the podcast at At The 250. We're available on Citroen, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Next week, uh, sadly or perhaps happily, depending on how you look at it, our world tour is coming to an end. Uh, we're wrapping up our kind of trip through the cinematic landscape, bringing the world to your ears in this time of lockdown. And to help us do that, the wonderful Phil Bagnell will be joining us to discuss another 1957 film, that is The Seventh Seal, directed by Ingmar Bergman. I'm really looking forward to talking with that. So we'll be discussing that next week. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like I'm, I'm edging towards that expert status that we keep talking about. <laughs> so for surely, one um, podcast at a time. Yeah, this, this, uh, it's, a, um, it's an essential service. Why should men babe 
receive life, dear. In this world, it fascinates. For men's lives are meaningless, babe. And all existence I truly hate. The lives of insects are such folly. Such suffering man knows each day. Just as briefly as a flower. All too soon, too soon to decay. Now humanity strives, who all its days, to sear its own flesh in base desire, exposing itself to fate's calamities, heaping karma upon karma. All awaiting, huh, huh, most of mankind, don't you know? At the end of his travails is the stench of rotten flesh, dear. It's a blossom yet over man's howling wails. They'll grow a flower and it smells sweet, babe. It's foul odor and into sweet perfume. It's fascinating the life of man. Oh, fascinating, this tune is done. Hello, Andrew. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. 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 Oh, it's God. It's fine. We can say hello. Huh? Oh, we can say hello. Come on, say hello. Are you recording? Sorry, just just yeah. for the for the for the for the listeners at home, yeah. this is <laughs> this is our new dog. Oh, <laughs> fantastic! Oh, lovely. Well, uh, what's his or her name? His name is Hans. We um, Hans. yes, we uh, you know, he's a, he's a miniature schnauzer, you know, of German stock. So we thought uh, we'd name him after the, the 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 best German movie character ever to grace the screen. That makes sense. Hans Gruber. So. Benefits from classical education. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay. It would have been great if it was called, like, uh, you know, Mifune or something, but... Uh... <laughs> but then you'd Alas. expect a level of intensity that I'm not sure a dog would deliver on. Um, all right.